Welcome back to the Almost Shameless Podcast. I am your host, Tanya Ray Fox. Thank you for joining me. This is my second podcast of the week. We are kicking 2022 off strong. We have so much to talk about for the next, you know, month or so as the NFL season wraps up, we get into the playoffs. It's going to be prime time for a podcast that talks about the NFL as often as I do. So for the second podcast of the week, we're going to chill it out a little bit and we're going to do a mailbag. As per usual, my mailbag is an ask me anything. Uh, Got a lot of sports questions. Obviously, we'll talk NFL. We're going to talk a couple other things. But before we get to that, I do want to uh, do a little follow up to the earlier podcast this week. Since I told you about how Antonio Brown made a fool out of Tom Brady by tossing out his Bucks career like it was expendable. He has since doubled down, nay, tripled down on his takes. He released text messages between him and Bruce Arians as some sort of proof that Bruce Arians had forced him to play hurt, which did not achieve that goal. Obviously, every player at this point of the season is dealing with injuries and everything else, but it's pretty clear to me at this point that Antonio Brown had been cleared to play. And so if Bruce Arians was asking him to play, he was doing so on the knowledge that he was cleared to play by the trainers and the medical staff on the team. Then he went after Alex Guerrero, posted text messages between he and Alex Guerrero, accusing him of taking his money for training $100,000 for training and never. And now that he wants his money back, accusing him of not giving it back, even though the text messages he posted between Alex Guerrero quite literally showed Alex Guerrero saying, I'll send the balance of what you paid ahead of time back to you. Give me your banking information and I'll send it. So he went after Tom Brady and was like, how could you work with somebody like this? That was bizarre. And then he did a podcast where he essentially uh, called out Tom Brady for not helping him get paid as much as Gronk got paid, that he felt offended that he was on a prove it deal while Gronk wasn't and blamed Tom Brady for that, even though Tom Brady doesn't do contracts and it's pretty obvious why Gronk got paid and AB didn't. And then he went on this bizarre rant about how Tom Brady is his friend, but he's not his real friend because he only wanted to use him for football. And it was just, it's just becoming more and more upsetting to listen to and watch. It's very clear that he is disconnected, at the very least disconnected from the reality of the situations. He's not connecting with the world and the situations around him with an honesty and a sense of what's actually going on. And I don't, you know, it could be for show. It could be because that's genuinely how he's perceiving things. Either way, it's definitely upsetting to watch. Um, you, it, It's not, you know, there's no pleasure in watching Antonio Brown turn on Tom Brady in this way. Like it sucks. Um, Tom Brady brought this man into his house on multiple occasions. He has gone to bat for him. He did go out on a limb for him. And while it is unsurprising that he's behaving this way, it still sucks to see. And I think it's a good reminder that if someone tells you explicitly who they are, perhaps you should believe them. Um, You know, it doesn't mean don't give people second chances, third chances, whatever. Don't write people off. But again, Maybe bringing him onto your football team wasn't necessary. AB seems to think he was the most important person on that offense. Based on the amount of times he was targeted by Tom Brady this season, I understand that Tom Brady was also trying to make him feel like he was the most important person on that offense. Obviously, injuries to Chris Godwin and dealing with injuries with Mike Evans probably had something to do with that. But uh, either way, this guy has a clear inflated sense of his importance to the team. I'd laid out 
earlier and on the podcast earlier in the week that he really wasn't as important to last year's playoff run as he or anyone else would like to believe. Um, they could have won the Super Bowl without him. They did win the NFC Championship game without him. And this is all just a lot of posturing. I have no idea if another team is going to bring him on, but I have to believe that at this point, if, if another team were to bring him on, there'd be a tough locker room situation there. At this point, no playoff teams need him. No one needs him for week 18. So I'm not sure where his future is in the NFL. Um, but I honestly hope for his sake, that his future is off the football field and doing what he needs to do to stop being a menace to the other people around him. All right, let's get into some mailbag questions. Hot stuff coming up. I'm just going to do these in the order that I saved them in my phone. So we may be skipping around a bit, but that's okay. It's a mailbag. That's what the point of this is. It's random. So uh, the first one is from my friend Vinny Crouch. And he asked, true or false, Survivor is the greatest competitive social experiment of all time. I don't know how many of my listeners watch Survivor. It's been on forever. Obviously, it's been on for over 20 years. And it is by far the best of the reality competition shows. Obviously it started back in like 2000. It is still going strong. It has evolved, it has changed over the years to sort of match the way that we have changed and evolved as a society. More millennials and Gen Z players coming in, changing up the way things go. And it is a hundred percent, yes, the best social experiment on television. If only because it is so consistent and we've able, been able to track year to year, um, even between seasons, season to season, because there's two seasons a year, obviously pandemic times have been different. We had to wait a while for um, the most recent season, but there will be two seasons a year back again going forward. And even sometimes season to season, you see the difference. If you go back and start in the early 2000s and then you watch all the way through, it does really mirror so much of what we deal with. And they've done a good job of recognizing that as a show themselves, when there are societal issues that come up on the show, whether it is diversity and race, whether it is misogyny and sexism, whether it is harassment, because all those things will come up on a show that's mimicking society, right? Especially a capitalist society, because this show is about doing whatever you can to win a million dollars. And living in America is really not that different than being on a reality show where you're doing whatever you can to win money and change your own life. Living in America is a race to the top, a race to finding financial security and life-changing opportunity. That's really what we're all doing for the most part to try to succeed in American capitalist society. So at first glance, you'd think, well, obviously putting that much money in front of someone is gonna make them act different, but how different really is it from people competing from, for jobs and, and financial security in the real world? And so when you do see things come up in that microcosm of 20, 30 people, a lot of times what you're seeing is this very exaggerated version of what goes on in the real world all the time. I cannot recommend Survivor highly enough. If you are into reality TV in any way, competition shows, whatever, and you're not watching it, I don't know how that's possible. If you're not into reality TV and competition shows, I still think you'd really like that one, especially because it's not repetitive season to season. 
And when they do bring players back and whatever, they're very good about picking which players to bring back, picking fan favorites. The fan relationship to the show is very important to the show itself. So there's enough consistency that you feel invested, but it's also different enough every season that you're never bored. Team Survivor. Vinny is the OG Survivor super fan. I didn't start getting into it until about eight years ago, but... I have watched seasons from before now, and I've watched basically every season since. And it's one of my favorites. It's one of the few shows that I still like make sure I DVR so that I don't have to stream it. I watch it so that like I can start watching it half hour into when it airs and fast forward through the commercials and watch it like basically live because that's how excited I am for it every week. And that's very rare. The only other thing I really do that with is sports. And obviously I don't watch it tape delayed. I watch sports live, but that's the only other reason I even have cable. So that'll tell you something. The next one is from Christopher at Pat's 1962 on Twitter. Realistically, what would be your dream job? So that's an interesting question because over the years, media has changed so much. And so my goals and the things that I feel like I could excel at have changed. I've changed, right? So when I graduated college, when Twitter was just becoming the space that it is now for sports news, there were still, I was still being told at my jobs, like not to be on Twitter at work or not to talk about certain things on Twitter, not to put certain things in my bio. Like it was a totally different time. Now Twitter is an essential part of what anybody in sports media does. You know, print media was still a thing when I was in college. People were still learning how to get newspaper jobs when I was in college. Like this is, you know, it's so different. Podcasting hadn't become what it is. It was still new. So the landscape of media has changed so drastically in the last 10, 12 years since the inception, the real inception of social media, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff that so have I, you know, I always, I originally thought I wanted to be a hundred percent. I just wanted to be a sports writer and I was a sports writer for a really long time, but because of the way sports writing has gone, because it's so blogified and the actual like well-paid writing jobs are fewer and far between, it became sort of an unsustainable thing for me. And I didn't have the security that I wanted to have, the financial and just like the job security that I wanted to have. Even when I was writing for places for years at a time, it was always on this, you know, freelance or contract basis, no benefits, none of that stuff. And so that got old after a while. And I just wasn't landing with a publication where I could feel that sense of security. And most people, even writing for great publications, don't have that sense of security. That's kind of the life of a writer. And so I got back into TV. I went to Fox Sports because I really felt that that was a place where I could have security and where I was comfortable. I came up working in TV in Boston. So it made me feel comfortable. Um, But... Over the last few years, since I've really gotten into podcasting, since I've been back and I've had this steady job as the news editor at Fox Sports, really talking every day about storylines and what does and doesn't work and honing in on certain topics and how we need to discuss them and things like that, I have felt more and more of a need and a desire to put myself out there in that same way. And so my dream job right now, so long way of saying is I really would love to get myself onto sports radio or a major podcast um, that sort of has a similar reach. Uh, Obviously I went on, so I went on the, on sports radio back in April of 2021. I did a little guest host spot at WEEI. And while I definitely was not a fit for that show, I had so much fun doing it and I could really envision how I would fit in that space. 
And I think it's really lacking anyone interesting or diverse voices, especially in the Boston mediascape. I have no personal problem with most of the people who are on air there. In fact, I've worked with so many of them from when I lived and worked back in Boston. And I respect a lot of them, but like, it's just too many white guys of a specific age and a specific demographic. And there's not a lot of female voices. And I just think that that's a space where I would thrive, whether it's in Boston or somewhere else. So, you know, I have let my career kind of take me where it takes me. And I think I'm still on that path, but it is something that's been on my mind. And then I think that down the road could end up being in the cards for me. So that is my current dream scenario. Pat Bruin. Oh, at Pat Bruin 22 asks, how should the Bruins go about stabilizing the defense goalie rotation or will Rask make that much of a difference? So I can very rarely watch Bruins games. That's the one team that I have a really hard time watching out here because we have access to NBA, MLB, and then obviously NHL out here in LA, but we do not have a hockey package. So I don't watch Bruins games unless they happen to be on national TV. So I'm sort of out of the loop on the Bruins. I can't fully in all honesty answer that and say that I know what I'm talking about. Um, it sucks because I actually love the Bruins so much. They're, I would pr- prefer to be able to watch them over the Celtics like by a mile, but it's just so hard. And I try to get to a Bruins game every year, whether it's out here or in Boston. I haven't been able to get to one this year. So it's just like, I'm the furthest out of the loop of the Bruins that I've been in a long time. Obviously, once it gets to the playoffs, it becomes so easy. But right now, I just don't know. I will say my instinct is that because over the last couple of years, I've seen the same thing happen where I feel like Tuka Rask is underestimated. I feel like his ability to help the team defensively is underestimated because he gets blamed so much when things go poorly. But I... I'm a big Tuka Rask defender. So while I'm not saying that's 100% affixed to anything, because like I said, I haven't watched, I have a feeling that Rask could help more than Bruins fans are giving him credit for just based on recent history. Okay, next one. This is from Bill at B Vinette on Twitter. Is it just me or does it seem like in a very strong AFC playoff field that the number one seed is also the weakest of them all? So I guess he's talking about the Titans. Um, in an 18 week schedule with seven teams qualifying, how the hell does that happen? Well, the whole reason that the AFC is strong is because there's a lot of parity. So there aren't teams with like, there isn't one runaway team with the best record. Like there is in the NFC because there is so much parity. So inevitably luck with the scheduling luck with your division helps. Uh, the Titans are in a division with the Colts, Texans and Jaguars. So they've had four games against the Texans and the Jaguars and you know, the Colts are our fringe playoff team with a very streaky quarterback. So there's that that's really helps them out a lot, right? Like that's just kind of how it works. The Chiefs play in a more difficult division. They've had to play the Raiders and the Chargers and the Broncos are scrappy as hell. So they've made it difficult. So, you know, there's just like, this is kind of how the cookie crumbles sometimes. I actually love the fact that that's how the AFC has worked out. First of all, the fact that there is so much parity and because it is so competitive has given the Patriots a chance to get into the place where they are now in the playoffs and not that they wouldn't have made it anyway, but certainly the AFC opened the door with the competitiveness, right? So it's a lot easier for a team like the Titans to end up with the one seed than it is for a team in the AFC North, you know, with four competitive teams or the AFC West with three ish competitive teams 
than it is, you know, for, for a, a team in the AFC South. And that's kind of been the story of the AFC South for a while. Uh, there's usually one team that's clearly head and shoulders above everybody else. And it's been the Titans for the last few years. So I'm not actually surprised that they have the number one seed as it stands right now. Okay. Jay on Twitter. Oh, wait. It, okay. I got it. It's 08 snowman 80. So Jay says, huge Pats fan here, but I'm super nervous that we will get embarrassed in the playoffs. Wish we had Cam's experience and arm behind center. Thoughts. Um, I feel like this might be pandering to my, uh, my earlier cam takes and the fact that I was such a cam Newton defender and supporter heading into this season. Um, I have got to be honest. It's hard for me at this point to argue that Mac Jones isn't the right player for them to have under center. He is the guy who's been the quarterback of the team. They've made their way to 10 and six, hopefully are going to finish the season 11 and six with a rookie quarterback. Do I think it would be nice to have someone with a stronger arm who could throw downfield and a veteran presence heading into a, a, an AFC playoff field where there's going to be a lot of competition? Obviously. But do I think that Cam Newton would be better than Mac Jones at this point? Well, he's not really shown us that he, he would be. You know, I mean, his, his ability on the ground would be awesome. Like, he would have been amazing in that Bills game in Buffalo, right? Like, he, I still think that Cam Newton has some things to offer. I don't think he was set up for success in Carolina being kind of pulled off the streets and into this offense that was flailing and they just don't really know what they're doing there. So again, like I still think Cam just kind of gotten a raw deal with the opportunities that he's gotten, but it's not enough for me to say that he would be a better option than Mac at this point. I just think that that would be disingenuous for me to assume. And I do think that every, like every week that Mac gets under his belt, he shows another uh, ability, whether it is even in losses when he's not that great, his ability to stay focused and calm and, um, and still get out there, protect the ball, things like that. Like I just have liked what I've seen. And now that they're there and whether or not they win a playoff game, I, you know, I said this in the last podcast, him getting playoff game experience is going to be such a huge thing for his leap in his sophomore year. Hopefully we're going to see a nice little sophomore year jump like we saw from uh, Josh Allen and Joe Burrow. And not that I think he's going to be that dynamic of a player all of a sudden, but I do think his passing will get stronger. Hopefully he'll get better downfield. And all of this stuff, even, even one playoff game, even if they lose it, is so beneficial to a young quarterback like Mac Jones. So, you know, I have to call myself out for my earlier takes and say, just at this point, it's pretty clear that Mac is working for them in the system that they run. You know, nobody here is saying that Mac isn't lucky to have landed with this defense and this head coach, and that he's not kind of being carried in some ways by the roster. I think that's very, very clear. We've talked about it, but again, that's the team that they have. And he ends up actually being a good fit for that. So earlier 2021, Tanya is just going to have to take the L on that one. I don't think it should be, you should be terrified that the Patriots can't win a game. The wild card matchups, who know who knows how they end up going. There's no team that totally terrifies me. Obviously they've already beaten the Titans. They've already beaten the bills in Buffalo. Um, so however it goes, like, you know, I guess you really don't want to necessarily run up on Patrick Holmes in the playoffs. You're kind of dumb if you want that, but do I think that he's, that they're unbeatable? No. Do I think that the Bengals are unbeatable? No, that's the team. I hope that they end up playing. Like I said, they're a fast young team. They have a lot of uh, talent, but I just, there's a lot of mismatches there in terms of coaching and experience and 
I just don't know how that offense, this downfield offense is going to fare against the Patriots who kind of know exactly what they're going to do and will be able to plan for it. So have a little hope there's chance here. And if they lose their playoff game and that's it, they're out of it. Like this to me, it'll be disappointing obviously, but this season has already been such an insane success. It's already to me, I think Belichick is coach of the year based on what's happened this season, having a rookie quarterback, getting him into the playoffs. And, um, you know, obviously all due respect to, to Mike Vrabel, who I think has done an amazing job on the Titans too, uh, dealing with the injuries and the adversity that they've seen. So I just, you know, don't be too worried. It'll be winning a game with a rookie quarterback is icing on the cake, making the playoffs with a rookie quarterback and, you know, out of such a short sort of rebuild, you have to feel lucky if you're a Patriots fan. Bet online would like to wish you a happy new betting year as we continue our march to the playoffs and beyond. Bet online remains the number one spot for all the best sports wagering action for 2022. New year and a new updated desktop and mobile website. So sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code CLNS50 to get started. From football, basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for 2022. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports. Bet online where the game starts. Okay, Charles Kennedy, so at MC Brady 52 on Twitter said, your thoughts on why the Patriots have not used the no huddle offense. Mac Jones ran it a lot in preseason with success. Well, listen, sometimes the most obvious answer is the correct one, which is because he's a rookie and he's really young and running the no huddle means you have to have a really good grasp of what you're trying to do offensively. And uh, while Mac did execute well in preseason, that was against second and third string players. And that, that, that's just not the case in the regular season. Now, there have been a few times he's successfully run the no huddle in the regular season, and that's been great. But there's also been times when things get a little hairy where Mac looks like a rookie and he makes rookie mistakes. And that is because he is young and still learning how to read defenses and what exactly they're dealing with in matchups week to week. Um, no huddle is an option that they should use sparingly with a young quarterback like Mac because he can't roll out of the pocket and make moves with his legs the same way that some of these other young quarterbacks can. And even those guys, I don't think necessarily would function great if they had to run the no huddle all the time. The thing about having a young quarterback is you really want to teach them the offense systematically. And something that Josh McDaniels has done really well this season is given Mac the tools to succeed by not asking him to do too much too soon or too early. He has gotten opportunities to show off. He's gotten opportunities to audible. He's gotten opportunities to go no huddle. But a lot of it has been just a slow burn, week to week, little responsibilities, new things every single week, not rushing that progress. And that is something that Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick have done to really create a great situation for Max so that by the time he is more ready to operate a little bit more independently out there and at a quicker pace. He will have the fundamentals down. I actually think that there are certain situations where it would be great for Mac um, picking up the pace, obviously, especially because they do have the option of the run game. And 
running, you know, read options and RPOs and things like that, that will help them out, just move the ball more quickly. First of all, they haven't necessarily needed to do that very often. And, um, you know, if they're in a two minute drill at the end of a playoff game, do I think that they're going to let him do it? Maybe, maybe they will. He is a good enough pocket passer. He's accurate. He doesn't turn the ball over a ton. Like he is a safe guy, but like I said, he's not going to escape pressure in the same way that a more mobile quarterback or, you know, some of these other guys we see. So if their defense reads it and, you know, he's kind of screwed. So I think they're smart by easing him into all these different looks and, uh, and forcing him to get in the huddle and really assess what's going on so that he's processing it always. You know, he has seen so little at this point in comparison to guys who have been in the league for three, four, five, six, seven years. Give him the opportunity to learn what he's seeing before he's asked to operate on that in a no huddle situation. Okay, uh, DJ at DJ Hurls 803 on Twitter. It's self-evident that Belichick, notwithstanding his genius, is incapable of drafting wide receivers. Uh, why don't the crafts break the bank to hire a scout proven at evaluating uh, wide receiver talent in the draft? Does such a whiz exist? Okay. So here's what I'm going to say. Um, this is a very, this is nothing against DJ. Cause this is something that a lot of people in uh, new England and sometimes even national media do is they hone in on the fact that Belichick is pretty bad with wide receivers and that's just like all they can focus on, especially because they had uh, Tom Brady for as long as they did. And so it was like very clear when he didn't always have his own version of a stud, a list wide receiver, they hone in on that. And they think it's like this fatal flaw. Um, it's never been a fatal flaw. They still went to nine Super Bowls. They're still the most successful dynasty in the history of the NFL coaches and GMs across the league have their weaknesses. They have Achilles heels. They have certain position groups, certain sides of the ball that they just don't draft well. Um, if you look back at the draft histories of some of the best coaches in the league, you're going to find that they are not as impressive as you might think. Drafting is incredibly difficult. Now, am I defending Bill Belichick for being particularly um, bad at drafting wide receivers? No. Um, do I think that they've had a little bit of bad luck with their receivers? Yes. I mean, Malcolm Mitchell, obviously, like, could have been a great receiver. We don't know what would have happened if he hadn't had his career cut short. Um, I also think that, like, there is something to be said for the way they utilize tight ends, the way they've been able to bring in outside wide receivers. He's not going to break the bank. And wide receiver itself is a position that often breaks the bank and doesn't really pay back. I think in a lot of ways, we overvalue the star wide receiver because it is so it seems so important to what the the quarterback does and I don't and I'm not trying to devalue how important a player like Cooper Cup or DeAndre Hopkins is to their team but if you don't have a Cooper Cup or DeAndre Hopkins honestly everything starts to even out use your running backs use your tight ends get some role player type wide receivers. I mean, their best wide receiver for a long time was Julian Edelman and it worked out fine. They went to a ton of Super Bowls. I just, it's, it's something that I think that people focus on a little too much because I do think that while he's not great at drafting wide receivers, I do think he understands how to bring in players that can function in that offense. And now that he has Mac Jones, let's give him some time. Let's see what he decides to do. Maybe he does decide I have to spend some money on a deep threat. Maybe he does switch things up because he doesn't have Tom Brady under center. You know, he did go out and get some guys that have been really helpful. Kendrick Bourne has been a great match with Mac on this team. The tight ends have been a great match with Mac on this team. So, you know, no, it's not worth like 
trying to find some great wide receiver scout. The draft is a crapshoot. And the fact that he is able to draft as well as he does at every single other position, the fact that he's able to find free agents as well as he does at every single other position. And we just focus so hard on the wide receiver. Meanwhile, he's still getting them to the playoffs. He's still getting them to Super Bowls. And we still focus on it. I just think it's it's something that we've learned to complain about rather than something that's an actual legitimate problem that's stopping them from being successful. Okay, one of my most loyal listeners, Kenny Rotter. Uh, when are you and Chris going to move to the east side so the four of us can hang out more? Well, okay, this is, a, this is like a very obnoxious thing that people from LA do. So I'm obviously going to engage in it because I'm an obnoxious person who lives in LA. Uh, there's the east side of LA. There's the west side of LA. There's you know, South Bay, and then there's the Valley. Okay. You're just, if you live in LA, you figure out where you kind of fit in the mix. We are West side people. We've always been West side people. I'm, I was raised on the beach in Plymouth, Massachusetts. I like to be near the ocean, near the beach cities on the water. And if you're a West side person, you don't just become an East side person overnight. I am not, it's not happening. I like to, I would like to go visit if we hadn't have been in a pandemic, would we have maybe visited the East side more recently? Probably, but I can guarantee you, Kenny, we are not going to be moving to the East side because we're just not East side people. However, we have very many lovely friends who are East side people and we love them just as much. Uh, just like, you know, you like, I'm sure people know this about the LA situation, but there are just East side people, West side people, Valley people and South Bay people. And it just kind of, you know, and then there's the weirdos who like to live downtown. Um, that's its own thing. We, one of our best friends also like loves living downtown. Yeah. LA is like all is like five, six different like types of cities in one city. So yeah, we live on the casual beach end of things. And you know, I think that's how I like it until, uh, I decide, I think I'll probably we'll be West side people until we no longer live in LA whenever, if that ever comes. Kenny also asked, why does the media still say Djokovic hasn't disclosed his vaccination status when he is seeking vaccine exceptions? Uh, it makes them look real dumb. I still, I don't, I don't know. I haven't gotten the impression that the media is trying to like hide the fact that Djokovic has said he's not vaccinated. I mean, he's been pretty open about the fact that he's not vaccinated. When you're seeking an exemption, you're, you're admitting you're not vaccinated. I think that they're just clarifying that he hasn't said outright, I'm not vaccinated, kind of an Aaron Rodgers, I've been immunized situation. Like, you know, so they're just probably trying to cover their asses in terms of like, saying outright, like he said he hasn't been vaccinated. They don't want to be responsible for anything. There are different libel laws too in different countries, like from Australia to England to the United States, like how journalists are held accountable. So some of what you're reading, if you're reading like British um, news versus Australian news versus the United States news, like things will be phrased very differently. So I don't know about that. Either way, Djokovic sucks. Uh, no one likes him. Uh, Rafa and Federer forever. Okay, uh, my guy Ladarius Brown asks, thoughts on Brock Lesnar winning at day one? You guys know how I feel about my WWE. Uh, Brock Lesnar won in a fatal five-way match at, at day one. He was up against Seth Rollins, Big E, who was the reigning champion, Bobby Lashley, and Kevin Owens. So in a fatal five-way, all you have to do is one person has to pin one other person, and that's it. Like you just have to, it doesn't, you don't have to get all other four people. It's just like the first person to pin the other per, one person wins the match. And Big E had been the champion. Everybody loves him. He's a fan favorite member of the new day. And Brock Lesnar wasn't supposed to be in that match. It was supposed to be a four-way match. 
And Brock Lesnar was supposed to be wrestling Roman Reigns for the tie for the SmackDown title. But Roman Reigns came down with COVID and last minute wasn't able to make it. They added Brock Lesnar to the four-way match, made it a five-way match, and then he won the title. He took the title from Big E. So uh, not only is Big E titleless, but he's out of the title picture right now because everybody has wanted to see Bobby Lashley versus Brock Lesnar. So they're going to get the billing for the next few weeks. Like this is going to be who's in contention for Brock Lesnar's title. Now, Brock Lesnar, obviously one of the more iconic wrestlers in WWE history, no shades, Brock Lesnar. I just, it's, there's two things that I don't like about it. The first is that it was clearly not planned that he was going to win the title and take it from Big E that night. And that makes me bombed because either someone else was going to take it from Big E or he was going to retain I have no idea. I haven't listened to any of the reporting on that, but that bums me out. And then the second is that instead of, uh, you know, us getting to see a little bit more of Biggie, um, perhaps in the future, still staying in the title contention, we're going to get Bobby Lashley, who was the champion prior to Big E not that long ago. And so we've just gotten a lot of Bobby Lashley in the last year. And I like him. And I think that that they'll be a great matchup, but to me, the best person in that match, the most dynamic, exciting person in that match uh, against Brock Lesnar in that five-way match was Big E. He is such a star and he is such a face. He is the most baby face, baby face. He's beloved. And now they're going to have to try to either, they're going to have a heel-heel match with Lesnar and Lashley, which we've already gotten plenty of that with Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar, heel-heel. And so we're, we're either going to have to try to turn Bobby Lashley face, which is going to take some time, or we're going to have another heel heel face off. And it's just, I'm tired of it. Like I want to see a true baby face hold these titles for a little longer than a few months. And that's just not happening right now. Obviously everybody who holds a title right now is turned heel Charlotte flair, Becky Lynch, Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. And those are four huge names. It's amazing that all those people are holding titles, but they've got to start mixing it up just a little more, just a little more. Okay, and finally, uh, I got two mailbag questions from Safir. Shall we? Um, Safir says, where does Russell Wilson play next season? Uh, That's number one. So here's the thing. Everybody is telling me that the most likely thing is that Russell Wilson stays in Seattle. I don't know. I think Russell Wilson is more likely to move on than Aaron Rodgers is, to be quite honest. After uh, what I saw from him watching the playoffs last year, the things he said in the offseason, what he has said at the end of this season, how this season went, I think even if they do get rid of Pete Carroll and they switch things up, I feel like he might just be ready for something new. He obviously likes to you know, work on his brand, and I could see him wanting to go to a place like New York. Uh, there's no jobs in LA, so that's not an option for him, but I could see him really wanting to make a name for himself in New York. The question is, would he want to play for Joe Judge? I say no. I don't think you want to just go to New York with the way their offensive line is right now and that coaching situation and take your life into your own hands again with a totally new team in a new city. But if they were to bring in somebody else, maybe a Harbaugh, maybe someone who's ready to leave Michigan, go out on top. I don't know. Could I see Russell Wilson going to play for the Giants for Jim Harbaugh and you know, if they, if they kind of shore up that offensive line, I could see it. So I don't think that that's most that like is, I can't necessarily say that's his most likely destination, but to me, it's the one that makes the most sense. 
So Safir's qu second question is which potential head coaching job is the most attractive? Okay. So let's go over which teams actually have head coaching jobs that are probably going are or will be open um, in the 2022 off season. So we have the Jaguars, the Raiders, the Bears, the Vikings, Broncos. And then I'm going to put two wild cards out there. I'm going to put Seahawks and Giants out there because I still think that if someone comes, if the right person comes knocking, uh, both those jobs could be up for grabs as well. Uh, Pete Carroll, I just think his time, I think that it's time for them, that whole organization to just start over, especially because of where they are in the, in their division situation. So I think it's time for them to start fresh. Um, and then the giant situation is a little less obvious. I know they want to keep Joe judge, but again, I think if the right person maybe comes knocking that things change. So of those teams, what's the most uh, attractive coaching situation? I'm going to give two caveats here. Obviously, if the coaching job comes packaged with Russell Wilson, that's the most attractive coaching job wherever he goes. And going to the Jaguars, he's not going to the Raiders. So that's potentially the Broncos, the Bears. As I said, maybe the Giants, uh, maybe staying in Seattle. The job I do find the least attractive is definitely the Vikings. I don't, I don't know. I love Mike Zimmer as a coach. I just, I, I don't, I'd, I'd stay the frig away from Kirk Cousins in that whole situation. Um, they're a great, they're a good team. They have good players. I just want nothing to do with it. The Jaguars. Yeah, no, thanks. That's cursed as hell. Um, I think that somebody will get a great chance to have an opportunity to rebuild with a young team with a really young, talented quarterback. And it could be really fun, but, um, it's just, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put that at the top of the list. In my opinion, I honestly think it's the Raiders. I think Derek Carr is kind of like the new Matt Stafford. I think he's super, super talented and just keeps getting kind of screwed circumstantially on the Raiders and what they've been dealing with over the past few years. I think he's a super underrated quarterback and they have this big, huge stadium. Their fans, the fans are super fun, like just having it in Vegas and all that stuff. I think it just would be a really fun opportunity. The problem is they are in, again, a pretty competitive division and depending on what the Broncos do, and, you know, where they decide to go in their off season, you know, they are, uh, they are perennial contenders and they're very good at rebuilding their team and getting back into contention in short periods of time. So you, you're dealing with the Broncos and then obviously the Chargers who are on the come up and the Chiefs who are still the cream of the crop in the AFC. So that's tough. But I just think the Raiders job is just, it's attractive in a lot of ways, just most especially because of Derek Carr. He's obviously a great leader. If he can do what he's done this season under the circumstances that he's done it, uh, imagine if he had some stability and not a total nut job and a person and a fake GM like Mike Mayock. Maybe if they have someone really running that team and really coaching it in a normal fuck like normal people, it could be something really special. And uh, you know, say what you want about an NFL team being being in Vegas, but that place is it looks fun. It's a gorgeous stadium, um, easy to fly in and out of. So yeah, I'm going to go with the Raiders. All right. That's it. We hit some great mailbag questions. Uh, this was the best group of questions that I've had, I think for a mailbag so far, you guys were really engaged. I appreciate that. It's clear that you're supporting almost shameless. And I, and I can't tell you how much that means to me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for a second time this week. And I will plan on touching base with you after week 18. We will have the entire playoff picture figured out. We will know who the Patriots are going to play, who everyone else, all the matchups, all the seating. And I'm really, really excited to talk about it. So I will check in with you after all of that has been decided. 
Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.